I'm Matt. And I'm Jenna. We are Mana. And this is Food for Thought. A podcast dedicated to encourage and inspire you as you seek to grow your relationship with Christ and live out your Catholic faith. In today's episode, I talk about some recent happenings in the church that some people think are mysterious, spooky, and scary. So I came across one of my old math books today, and it, it just looked so sad. It had all of these problems. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 81. It is good to be with you. There's been a lot going on in the world and in the church, and so I'm excited to get into that today. Happy Halloween if you're listening to this right when it comes out. Um, and that is why we're talking about these things and a lot of the uh, scary, mysterious, or fear-based reactions people are having to a lot of things going on in the church or some things that are uh, mysterious in ways um, as well. So we'll be talking about a few different things on this episode. But before we do that, getting into our peak pit and plug. So my peak is that it's almost my birthday, so I'm excited for that. Um my birthday's November 7th, and I will be 33, which is my Jesus year. So I'm very excited for what the Lord is going to bring in this coming year. So if you could pray for me uh, this week or as you're hearing this, um, I would really appreciate that. Um, my pit is just a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about in this episode, or at least the reaction to it, the very divisive, non-critical thinking, very emotion-based reaction to everything going on in the world, politics, church happenings, um, that the fact that everyone needs to express their opinion and beat the sound bite without actually doing their research. Um, and so I really don't care about that. Um, I'm here in this episode to present to you actually things that have happened and what really happened and how we can be charitable to both sides and see where they're coming from. Um, but that has been a big pit because it's just been all over all of my feeds. And so my plug is two things. Um, if you're feeling just the inundation of division with all the political news and everything, I think you should take a social media or internet or news fast and just limit yourself or remove it completely for a few days. Take a deep breath. Let yourself rest and just be free of it. And then I would also like to put a plug out there for um, just the classic skill of critical thinking and learning what logical fallacies are and how to assess an argument and find the actual evidence and not just get all your uh, information from an echo chamber of the news that already agrees with you and sensationalizes everything. So yeah, that's my plug. Let's stop doing that, okay? Um, so the first of the things that I want to spend a lot of time talking about on this episode um, it happened a while ago, almost a month ago now, and that is that Pope Francis released his third encyclical. It is called Tutti Frutti, no, just kidding. It is called Fratelli Tutti, which means um, all brothers or all brothers and sisters, if you um, know the context in Italian. And so this is his third one of those. The first one was Lumen Fide, the Light of Faith, which he, I believe he worked on with Pope Benedict. Um, or it came out that Pope Benedict worked a lot on it and then he finished it, I think, with something like that. It was very early on in his papacy. And then the first one that was really like Pope Francis, which was technically his second encyclical, which uh, it was Laudato Si, which is on the environment. And so our Sunday visitor, which is a um, Catholic publication, they described this encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, as a papal plea to care for our fellow man 
in the same way that his previous encyclical, Laudato Si, was a papal plea to care for our common home. And so um, this is all about social friendship and fraternity. It was officially announced on September 5th of this year. And this title, uh, Fratelli Tutti, is taken from a writing <clears throat> of St. Francis of Assisi called Admonitions. Um, so this title and the context of its publication and the patronage of um, Francis of Assisi for um, Pope Francis, who uh, was a pioneer of interreligious dialogue, all of this invites people, readers, to consider um, this document's main theme of human fraternity and um, seeing one another as brothers and sisters. Um, the title has been criticized because it seems like it's leaving people out. Um, the, the literal translation is all brothers or brothers all, but the Italian phrase has the common connotation because it's a gendered romance language, meaning it is, it is all... Um, all humanity would be a better way um, and is by default inclusive in that sense in its original language. So um, Pope Francis signed Fratelli Tutti on October 3rd in Assisi at the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi um, after celebrating Mass there. And it was the first time that a encyclical was signed outside of Rome, a papal encyclical. And his trip to Assisi, Pope Francis' trip, was the first outside of Rome since the beginning of the pandemic. But he had visited that city a few times before. Um, the text um, was published by the Vatican on October 4th, the feast day of St. Francis. And um, the Spanish, a Spanish Catholic uh, website had leaked the Spanish version, um, I think, the day before. Um but you can um, you can go find this on uh, the Vatican website. We'll have a link in the show notes. Um, and Pope Francis says that the inspiration for this the this letter uh, encyclical that's what uh, encyclical means. It's kind of circular letter that's meant for the whole church, um, just for kind of pastoral guidance. Um, he said he was inspired by this document um, after his meeting. In February 2019, in Abu Dhabi, with Ahmad Al Tayeb, the Grand Imam of Al Azhar, um, and during that meeting, they signed a document called the Document on Human Fraternity, which you'll see a lot of thematic similarities to that um, concept in this. So, uh, Fratelli Tutti is in eight chapters, 287 paragraphs. Uh, and that's how papal documents um, and church documents are normally uh, listed, not by page number, but by paragraph number. Same thing with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And there are a ton of footnotes, 288 footnotes, more footnotes than paragraphs. And many of these footnotes are um, of Pope Francis's previous statements and writings. And so, and that's common of papal documents. It's written in Spanish, which is Pope Francis' preferred language. And so this really is considered a culmination of everything that he has said and done as Pope so far. And so um, I want to read to you <clears throat> um, just a little bit of the very beginning and then kind of go through a little bit of a chapter summary so you're aware of this really important document um, that Pope Francis has uh, given us. And a very, um, I mean, I would say um, it's very timely and it struck me reading it as very <clears throat> um, unusual for a pope, uh, papal document. It hits on a lot of modern issues in a way that maybe um, things haven't, uh, you know, papal documents or church documents haven't before. And yet a lot of it st also stands in the tradition of things that are already in the catechism or previous popes have already uh, said. And so um, this is how it begins in paragraph one. 
Fratelli Tutti. With these words, St. Francis of Assisi addressed his brothers and sisters, remember it is inclusive to both, and proposed to them a way of life marked by the flavor of the gospel. Of the counsels Francis offered, I would like to select the one in which he calls for a love that transcends the barriers of geography and distance and declares blessed all those who love their brother as much as when he is far away from him as when he is with him. In his simple and direct way, St. Francis expressed the essence of a fraternal openness that allows us to acknowledge, appreciate, and love each person regardless of physical proximity, regardless of where he or she was born or lives. And he goes on to say this same saint and concept inspired him to first write Laudato Si and now to write this when it comes to our relationship with one another. So chapter one is called Dark Clouds Over a Closed World. And reading this, it is very clear that Pope Francis has his fingers on the pulse of what's going on in the United States and very well probably what's going on in a lot of other parts of the world, at least in Western culture. Um, He talks about political division. He talks about racism and immigration. And and generally, he references this throwaway culture, which is something that I believe even um, Pope John Paul II mentioned specifically. And you can probably find that um, Pope Benedict as well. But um, something that's been talked about for a long time, that we have certain people or issues that we just kind of, that cause us to just throw away other people. We've lost this sense of belonging. Uh, And he criticizes um, the role that technology has to play in this sometimes. He says in paragraph 42, digital connectivity is not enough to build bridges. It is not capable of uniting humanity. Um, and so we need to have a, a sense of encounter. And this is a theme and a phrase that you'll see and hear all over this document. And that is the culture of encounter. That we need to get out of our selfishness, isolation, our indifference, and our digital dependence to actually learn how to interact and provide opportunities for real listening. You'll also see the words that are um, common um, from our founding documents in America and in France that you may be studied in political science, liberty, equality, and fraternity. He doesn't specifically reference any of those, um, you know, founders of those countries or documents, but he uses that concept um, and you'll see those words pop up all over, especially fraternity. Um, In paragraph 45, he uses the phrase fake news. I just love that fake news is now in a papal document. That is so funny to me. Um, And then he references the dangers of extremism within Christianity. And this is a paragraph I wanted to read you. In paragraph 46, we should also recognize that destructive forms of fanaticism are at times found among religious believers, including Christians. They too can be caught up in networks of verbal violence through the internet and the various forms of digital communication. Even in Catholic media, limits can be overstepped, defamation and slander can become commonplace, and all ethical standards and respect for the good name of others can be abandoned. How can this contribute to the fraternity that our common father asks of us? Pope Francis, are you reading my diary, bro? Like, come on, this is so our current situation and it's been my like just wholehearted dissatisfaction and disappointment with so much of what's going on in the catholic world where everyone just wants to have their soundbite everyone thinks that they are 
you know, unanimously correct and demonizes the opposing side. Nobody's just sitting down and saying, hey, tell me why you believe what you believe. Tell me about that. I just like people just, you know, extremizing and extremizing and then demonizing the other side, even within the church to the point where the the way that we are interacting in a political um, sphere and the way that people interact in the secular sphere when it comes to disagreements looks almost no different than how we interact with each other inside the church. And we should be different. We should be visibly different. And yet I see, at least in these past few months, a lot of people who are in the public sphere of Catholicism on both sides, you know, very, you know, more radically conservative or traditional leaning or more modern or liberal leaning, both using these means of division to demonize the other. Um, and so I think we have to really be cautious, no matter your leaning, it's okay to, you know, um, have issues that you care about. And it's okay to express those, but recognize when there is some tension or difficulty there or disagreement, how are we treating that? How are we doing it? Because otherwise we're going totally against the the theme of this document, which is social friendship and fraternity. That is um, our primary goal. And Pope Francis in chapter two, called A Stranger on the Road, demonstrates this by going into a theological reflection on the parable of the good Samaritan um, about, you know, a, a Samaritan who was ostracized from the Jewish people was from a different cultural group is left on the side of the road dying and these religious figures pass him by. And yet, uh, or no, sorry, it's not a Samaritan. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, you know, um, a person who is um, um, on the side of the road, but the Samaritan, the one who is ostracized, they're the one who comes in and cares for this person, not the religious leaders um, of the time. And so the Samaritan, even though he is the outcast of the Jewish people, even from a hated group for many of the extreme extremized Jews, um, he is the Samaritan is the one who's glorified in the story as the hero. Um, St. Irenaeus um, would uh, later, uh, centuries later, um, in paragraph 58 of this document is pointed out as using the image of a melody to make this point um, that the Good Samaritan makes. Uh, one who seeks the truth should not concentrate on the differences between one note and another, thinking as if each was created separately and apart from the others. Instead, he should realize that one and the same person composed the entire melody. That we cannot look to these little differences that cause division, but to recognize we all contribute to this tapestry of creation that God has enacted. Um, and so he continues in this theological reflection, um, a couple lines in this that I love, paragraph 62, for love shatters the chains that keep us isolated and separate. In their place, it builds bridges. Love enables us to create one great family where all of us can feel at home. Love exudes compassion and dignity. And then in paragraph 64, we need to acknowledge that we are constantly tempted to ignore others, especially the weak. And so that goes into our next chapter three, envisioning and, endang- and engendering, sorry, envisioning that's not right, envisaging and engendering an open world, I can read. And so basically the whole theme of this chapter is we need to reinvigorate or remind ourselves of the gospel call to get out of ourselves and be in relationship with those beyond our circle 
beyond our own family, beyond the core group of people who agrees with everything that we stand for, but that we would have what he calls in paragraph 94, a love ever more open. So he says in paragraph 100, this is not a false universalism, meaning that we all need to be um, you know, the, the same, but to celebrate the diversity and um, individualism that everyone has to offer. Um, however, in paragraph 105, he then criticizes the other extreme and talks about that individualism does not make us more free, more equal, or more fraternal. The mere sum of individual interests is not capable of generating a better world for the whole human family. And so he talks about some of the criticisms or, or the obstacles toward having this sense of openness to the whole world. He talks about privilege in this document, um, paragraphs 108 to 109, 118 and 121. He uses the word doublespeak and, and, and how we can't just say things like freedom, democracy, fraternity, and promote them because that's meaningless. We actually have to make substantial changes in our economic and social systems to make sure that, um, where he says, only when they uh, no longer produce even a single victim, a single person cast aside, will we be able to celebrate the Feast of Universal Fraternity. So we constantly have to be working for this more, uh, the sense of deeper openness. And so in this section is one of the pieces that has been heavily criticized by especially a lot of more conservative or traditional Catholics. And that is Pope Francis' criticism of property and private property. Um, and he says this, If one person lacks what is necessary to live with dignity, it is because another person is detaining it. I believe that's in 119. Um, and this is nothing new. You can look in the Catechism, um, paragraphs 2403, 2425, um, and that talks about the disparity of wealth and the fact that everything that has been given us has been given to all of us. Um, and Pope Francis goes on to say, for my part, I would observe that the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or inviolable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. So the problem here is that um, Pope Leo Twelfth. When he wrote Rerum Novarum in um, the late 1800s, in paragraph 15 of that document, he actually says that the first and, form and most fundamental principle, therefore, if one would undertake to alleviate the condition of the masses, must be the inviolability of private property. So the interesting, so this is like, seems like it's in direct contradiction. Um, the problem is that... Um, you know, so people are reverting back to Pope Leo and saying Pope Francis is saying something that's not in the tradition of the church. Is this a new teaching, you know, or, you know, he's a bad pope, blah, 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 blah. Well, there's a uh, context is important here. So Pope Leo Twelfth was writing Rerum Novarum as a criticism of the growing um, threat of communism and very totalitarian socialistic um political systems and social systems that were developing in different economies. And so in his statement, there's no mention of God or that it's an inviolable God-given right. He's talking about the soci social economic structures and particularly the dangers of socialism. It was written in 1891. Um, and so, no, the government should not forcibly be able to take what you have. Your right to property, to ownership is invi inviolable in that sense. However, what Pope Francis is talking about 
is the fact that we cannot lean on some right to private property to hoard an abundance when others are struggling. And so even though they both use that word inviolability and Pope Francis says we it's not and Pope Leo XII says it is, we have to recognize they're talking about two different applications. Pope Leo is talking about when it's being applied to, to economic systems like so, um, socialism and communism. And in that sense, no, we need to be able to retain property. The government can't just take whatever it wants and give it to whoever else. Pope Francis is saying, there's no um, sense that like you have God's given permission to just like take, 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 take and have abundance. You have to recognize that um, life and the, you know, the inviolable rights from God come first and that, you know, property doesn't supersede those. Um, but because there is similar language there, it is hard to find that to, to see past that contradiction, um, which I can appreciate. Um. Pope Francis says in, in paragraph 127, we can aspire to a world that provides land, housing, and work for all. This is the true path of peace, not the senseless and myopic strategy of sowing fear and mistrust in the face of outside threats. For a real and lasting peace will only be possible on the basis of a global ethic of solidarity and cooperation in the service of a future shaped by interdependence and shared responsibility in the whole human family. And so this, um, I think he mentions this, um, or I, I came across it elsewhere, I, but I think it's in there. St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta uh, was quoted as saying, uh, when I give to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. And that's kind of been the response people have had toward Pope Francis in some circles. Um, we move into chapter four, which is called a heart open to the whole world. So in order, as Pope Francis argues, for us to ha have this kind of idea of bringing about an open world, it has to start with our own hearts and in our own local places. Um, and so he talks a lot about radical hospitality. He talks specifically about hospitality to the migrant and that economic hospitality. And paragraph 135, he directly addresses un the United States and our immigration policy um, and just kind of encourages us to be welcoming to those um, who are seeking to come into this country. Um, so he's talking about here openness at the local level. And also the universal level. So local level, he's talking about social friendship, that first theme of this document, and then universal, the concept of fraternity, the second theme of this whole document. Um, and so, yes, we should know and love our own people, our local you know, culture or our own culture, but not narcissistically. Uh, he says, a culture without universal values is not truly a culture. That's paragraph 146. A little before that, in paragraph 143, he says, The solution is not an openness that spurns its own richness. Or that um, we can't have dialogue with others, other people, without a sense of our own identity. So there can't be any openness between people except on the basis for your love for your own culture, your own land, your own people. And so there's an appreciation, there's a both and reality here. And then he mentions basically like, um, you know, we can't have um, this kind of completely enclosed, um, ahistoric, static indigenism that would reject any kind of blending, uh, what would be called in Spanish mestizaje or mestizo. 
Um, and there's a book uh, called The Future is Mestizo about um, kind of American Catholicism dynamics um, in our country. Um, and he goes on to say, for our own cultural identity is strengthened and enriched as a result of dialogue with those unlike ourselves, nor is our authentic identity preserved by an impoverished, impoverished isolation. That's in paragraph 148. Um, and then he says in 153, today, no state can ensure the common good of its population if it remains isolated. So we need to have an openness. And a part of that openness is about openness to other cultures, dialogue with them, and not closing ourselves off to diversity or to the rest of the world. And so in chapter five, that leads into his recommendation for a better type of politics. Now that we talk about what we've envisioned, how to do it at a more local level, now let's look at the wider level of how we can have a better sense of encountering other people. And so he says just that we need to have a sense of a people rather than individual persons. Um, that's in paragraph 182. Um, that that's more important that to recognize we are part of a people, part of a human family, a global family. Um, and at the same time, there are no peoples without respect for the individuality of each person. Uh, and so we can't toss out individuality and expression, but to recognize we are part of something bigger. Um, he criticizes populism here that um, you it's impossible these days to express any kind of view without being categorized and that's unfortunate um, so he calls for a reform um, of the United Nations organization to prevent impositions of power ideologies of wealth on weaker or poorer nations and increasing the concept of a global family uh, that we need to rise above political promises, propaganda, and sensationalistic movements or tactics to really serve those in need. That people are more important than the market. Um, a lot of this, you can imagine, very hard for people who are very ingrained in especially Republican political values um, or that kind of platform to hear, especially Catholics. This and that's because Catholicism, as I mentioned in previous episodes, it does not fit within either party. And you can try and force fit it or you can feel like, well, one major piece fits. And so I'm just going to try and kind of tinker all these other ones. But no, if you're honest and you lay all the issues on the table, they do not all fit within the framework of one or the other. And so the, anything that you read in this document, if you read this document, you will find something if you are more... How do I say this <laughs> charitably? Um, if you find yourselves having a stronger and more passionate identity to a political party than to your faith and your identity in God as a child of God and as a member of the Catholic Church, then this is going to strike you um, in a difficult way. There are going to be tensions here. Um, and so it might be an opportunity for you to alert yourself to the fact that maybe I've given too heavy of an allegiance to an earthly institution and I need to recognize what God is calling me to do uh, as someone who follows him first, as a disciple of Jesus Christ first and foremost. Um, speaking of politics, um, in 176, Pope Francis even notes that um, for many people, politics is a distaste, distasteful wor word often due to mistakes, corruption, and inefficiency of some politicians. There are also attempts to discredit it and replace it with economics or twist it into one ideology or another. But can our world function without politics? 
Can there be an effective process of growth toward universal fraternity and social peace without a sound political life? Um, politics, he argues, is an avenue, perhaps the highest avenue for social charity. Yeah, we need it, but we need to reform it and have a different idea of what politics is for and what can be accomplished. We need to look for the fruitfulness um, of it versus immediate results. Like, where's the tangible data? You know, um, we need to initiate processes whose fruits will be reaped by others, is what he says in paragraph 196. Um, this, I th this last paragraph of the section I want to read is so telling of his awareness of what's going on, at least in our part of the world. Uh, this is 191. At a time when various forms of fundamentalist intolerance are damaging relationships between individuals, groups, and peoples, let us be committed to living and teaching the value of respect for others, a love capable of welcoming differences, and the priority of the dignity of every human being over his or her ideas, opinions, practices, and even sins. And he goes on to criticize the fanaticism and the closed-mindedness and the fragmentation culturally that has been in our present-day society, um, calling for a good sense of politics, to take that first step and insist that different voices be heard and that we're meeting the needs. So that is chapter five, A New Kind of Politics. Chapter six, um, he brings us back to the principles of dialogue and friendship in society. Um, that dialogue, but needs to be dialogue and respect that is grounded in truth, that it's not dialogue that is surrounding manipulated facts, or um, he turns, he returns to kind of some criticism of social media and technology here about how that tends to be more of just a feverish exchange when we are, uh, it's not very reliable. And he says these exchanges in paragraph 200 are merely parallel monologues on social media. They may attract some attention by their sharp and aggressive tone, but monologues engage no one, and their content is frequently self-serving and contradictory. He says in 202, the heroes of the future will be those who can break with this unhealthy mindset and determine respectfully to promote truthfulness aside from personal interest. He goes on to say the solution is not relativism. Uh, in 208, we need to learn how to unmask the various ways that truth is manipulated, distorted, and concealed in public and private discourse. There's been lots of criticism over the years of um, the uh, distortion of the media and their involvement in being very biased in their opinions one way or another and how they present the news. This um, seems to be a criticism of that type of behavior. Um, and so he returns here to this theme of the culture of encounter. And he says this in 217. I love this line. Let us arm our children with the weapons of dialogue. Let us teach them to fight the good fight of the culture of encounter. That is like such a awesome piece of this. I just love it. So, um, he mentions liberty, equality, and fraternity in this section, um, and then talks about empathy, seeing, seeing and seeking the marginalized, and recovering the virtue and concept of kindness. In 222, he criticizes consumerist individualism and how that has led to a great injustice um, in how we see ourselves, um, or see only ourselves, and we can maybe neglect the needs of others. So that's chapter six. Chapter seven is called Paths of Renewed Encounter. And he talks a lot about forgiveness 
um, starting over, recognizing our need to come clean, to bring more, especially forgotten voices to the table and admit our own wrongdoing in excluding others. Um, he criticizes violence and how it cannot be the answer. Uh, that we need to look to resolve conflict and recognize that reconciliation is done by individuals, not by blanket gestures or policies that ignore the hurt done to other people. Um, he says forgiveness is always possible, uh, brings, uh, brings power by ending a cycle that revenge could have continued to perpetuate. Um, and then two extreme situations of this, um, they're false answers that do not solve the problem that must be solved are war and the death penalty. And he talks about those in detail, um, providing some different guidance um, than, or some uh, expanded guidance and pastoral practice for our current time that is uh, different than what the church has taught in the past. Uh, and so, but he basically says, in many parts of the world, this is in 225, there is a need for paths of peace to, and to heal open wounds. He um, recognizes and calls us to the need to be peacemakers, um, you know, straight out of the Beatitudes. And he talks a lot about just the pain and conflict that individuals have done to one another, that political regimes have done by um, empty diplomacy, doublespeak, hidden agendas. Um, and he says this in 2.30, society benefits when each person and social group feels truly at home. In a family, parents, grandparents, and children all feel at home. No one is excluded. Uh, and we'll talk about that um, concept when we talk about some of Pope Francis' recent remarks um, about civil unions in a moment. Um, a great line. You should put this. I want everyone to put this in their office at work. Um, and this is paragraph 231 of Fratelli Tutti. Great changes are not produced behind desks or in offices. And so if you work in a desk or behind of office, that's not Pope Francis saying that your job means nothing. What he's saying is that that's not enough. We need to go be face-to-face -face with other people. We need to actually go reconcile, encounter, have dialogue, listen, and really see the diversity and the rich tapestry of the human experience that we would miss if we're just trying to put together a policy or create a structure or a system or a ministry to serve people behind a desk and not actually talking to people. Um, he starts to criticize a lot of the violence in our world, um, violent public demonstrations. This is interesting. This um, seemed to me to speak directly to a lot of the looting and, and rioting that happened um, in our country. But he references um, you know, the bishops in Colombia and some things going on in South America. So who knows what he's really um, mentioning specifically. Um, but it's obviously meant to be for the whole world, this encyclical. But he says, violent public demonst demonstrations on one side or the other do not help in finding solutions. Um, origins and objectives of civil demonstrations are not always clear. Certain forms of political manipulation are present, and in some cases they may have been exploited for partisan interests. Rather, we should be seeking reconciliation between opposed groups, but making sure we begin with the lowest, the weakest, and the forgotten, not the people who are in power or in charge of these different uh, groups, but really making sure those people who commonly get tossed aside, unfortunately, by both major groups on either end of a, an issue or an election or whatever it may be, are the people who are brought to the table and who, who are served. Um, 
Pope John Paul II, um, in I think this is mentioned in paragraph 240, observed that the church does not intend to condemn every possible form of social conflict. The church is well aware that in the course of history, conflicts of interest between different social groups inevitably arise, and that in the face of such conflicts, Christians must often take a position honestly and decisively. So this doesn't mean that we can always camp out like just being friends with everybody like we yes we should be friends with everybody but we also individually need to, to take a position um, whatever we think based on our um, our what our church teaches on our conscience and forming that conscience um, through the guidance of the authority of the church uh, we need to decisively make a decision for what we believe is for the good of the most people and for for all people hopefully um but this does not mean that we um, that we can't that we fail to forgive or that we fail to um, reconcile when we have hurt others. We're called to love everyone without exception, is what it says in two forty one. But at the same time, loving an oppressor does not mean allowing him to keep oppressing us or letting him think that what he does is acceptable. So he talks about that when it comes to um, di- difficulties or um, you know horrible political regimes that exist around the world encouraging Christians who live in those countries to recognize like you have certain rights and there will be conflict and just because we are being called to forgive and not to be violent does not mean that what is happening is okay um and so recognizing how conflict can be resolved through reconciliation um through living out the gospel values um He says in 250, in the face of an action that can never be tolerated, justified, or excused, we can still forgive. Wow, that is hard. Um, You know, I imagine, especially in other parts of the world where it's really, really difficult, crazy political regimes and things, that would be a hard line to swallow. But it is the calling of the gospel. He criticizes violence perpetrated by the state in 253, um, that it is um, not on the same level as that perpetrated by smaller groups because the state has a responsibility to care for everyone and to promote the common good. Um, He starts to criticize war as a solution um, that uh, in 258, he says, we can no longer think of war as a solution because its risks will probably always be greater than its supposed benefits. In view of this, It is very difficult nowadays to invoke the rational criteria elaborated in earlier centuries to speak of the possibility of a just war, never again war. Um, And that's not that unusual. Pope John XXIII um, said things like this before, um, and he references that, I think, in in paragraph 260, um, and, uh, and then goes into the death penalty and says some of the same things, that the death penalty should no longer be tolerated and that's not new to Pope Francis either. In 263, um, Pope St. John Paul II um, stated clearly as well and firmly that the death penalty is inadequate from a moral standpoint and no longer necessary form of penal justice. And so Pope Francis is standing in that more recent tradition because of how our culture has changed and how we can ensure the protection of our citizens much more than we could in previous centuries, um, that we really no longer have recourse to the death penalty. 
um, 268, he says this, All Christians and people of goodwill are today called to work not only for the abolition of the death penalty, legal or illegal in all its forms, but also to work for the improvement of prison conditions out of respect for the human dignity of persons deprived of their freedom. I would link this to life imprisonment. A life sentence is a secret death penalty. All very hard things. Um, that Pope Francis is calling us to, um, things that fall on either side of party lines many times. Um, and so that is a, a pretty difficult chapter, I think, for some people as well, as they've read this, that has promoked some, uh, promoted or provoked some criticism, uh, chapter 7. And then the last chapter, chapter 8, Pope Francis talks a lot about interreligious dialogue and how religions all across the world are at the service of fraternity, that we have a common desire to, um, to serve others, to um, promote fraternity and social friendship. Um, and so we need to recognize um, our, our common goal and how we can help each other. And so he uh, says that this is the role of the church, um, the advancement of humanity, of universal fraternity. Um, says in 276, the church is a home with open doors because she is a mother. Uh, and so as we imitate Mary, the mother of Jesus, we want to be a church that serves, that leaves home and goes forth from its places of worship, goes forth from its sacristies in order to accompany life, to sustain hope, and to be the sign of unity, to build bridges, to break down walls, and to sow seeds of reconciliation. He says in this section also a phrase that has been mentioned in some of his comments about civil unions, uh, convivencia civil. He uses convivencia civica, which is you know pretty similar to that, um, and he uses it in the the our coexistence with one another and our need for fraternity. Um, and so that's important for our discussion in a moment about his recent comments in that regard. But to kind of round out this last chapter. That as Christians, we must be aware, this is in 277, that if the music of the gospel ceases to resonate in our very being, we will lose the joy born of compassion, the tender love born of trust, the capacity for reconciliation that has its source in our knowledge that we have been forgiven and sent forth. If the music of the gospel ceases to sound in our homes, our public squares, our workplaces, our political and financial life, then we will no longer hear the strains that challenge us to defend the dignity of every man and woman. And so we need to find occasions to encounter one another, to promote the common good, and to serve the poor. Lastly, in 284, each one of us is called to be an artisan of peace by uniting and not dividing, by extinguishing hatred and not holding onto it, by opening paths of dialogue and not by constructing new walls. And that walls, uh, I think, was a comment that he originally made in reference to some policies he was asked about um, of Trump wanting to build a wall around the time of the last election. And there's quite a few mentions of that phrase in this document as well. Um, so a document that um, has certain... Uh, difficulties for, I think, anybody reading it who might be a little more aligned to political party than to the church. Uh, and so um, interesting stuff. Um, I'm going to put a thematic index. It's not um, all, you know, encompassing, but, you know, this document does touch on themes, um, abortion, racism, immigration, interreligious relations, dignity of women, dignity of work, capital punishment, the environment, international politics, economy and the disparity of wealth, 
technology and media, private property, modern slavery and human trafficking, war, solidarity, and the culture of encounter that he talks about here. Um, all of that, um, I think, is is it's crazy that he fit that much in a papal document and one that is um, so... I just like so clear that he knows what's going on in the world right now, but it has garnered a lot of criticism. Along with that has been criticism towards some of Pope Francis' recent remarks. You may have seen this in the news, um, but Pope Francis was featured in a documentary called Francesco, and it was released, I think, like last week or the week before as I'm recording this at an Italian film festival, and it was an interview that he did in 2019 um, about a lot of different things, um, but it presents him as saying the following remarks about his approach to pastoral care to those who identify as gay or lesbian. He says, uh, homosexuals have a right to be part of the family. They're children of God and have a right to a family. Nobody should be thrown out or made miserable because of it. And so he did say these words on camera, but he did not say them in that order or use those phrases in immediate proximity. He's speaking Spanish, I believe, in the interview. And so the subtitles are out of order. Um, I don't know if the camera's always on him. I haven't not watched the documentary yet, and so please take that with a grain of salt. Um, and it was frustrating also to see that um, so many people just jumped on videos and you know responses to this just saying oh this is awful i can't believe he said this without just taking a moment to say well what was the context was he quoted accurately um what does it mean what he was saying like am i interpreting this correct have i seen the documentary um and so many of them their first comment had not and so i don't think it's destructive to say okay we need to wait for you know a more context here as a reminder here's what the church has taught so far on this um, but a lot of them were just jumping to conclusions and acting like, oh, my gosh, everything is going wrong. You know, Lord have mercy. It's just like, OK, like, calm down for a second. Like, let's wait until we have a statement or we can get a little more information. Um, and so the thing that that wasn't that statement I read was not something that threw people up in in uh, in arms. Um, what was was the statement that. um we have to create a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. I stood up for that. And so in the United States, civil unions are, you know, the legal, I don't know, non-married, non-marriage equivalent of um, a same-sex couple wanting to be in a married state with the same legal rights. I don't really think it's popularly advocated for in the United States because, you know, it's basically marriage. It's a civil equivalent of it's it's the equivalent of marriage. And so if you have civil marriage and then civil union, but they have the same legal protections, I think people just stopped really kind of categorizing it that way. And so um, anyway, I think we have to recognize first and foremost, Pope Francis is talking about in this interview some policies and approaches he had to this issue of ministering to people. Um, who were identifying as gay or lesbian or in homosexual relationships while he was in Argentina as archbishop. And so um, he, um, he, here's, here's what he really said um, from this, this interview. Um, well, I don't know if I want to read this whole long section. Um, yeah, I will. So um, These these are the the excerpted remarks in their entirety. Pope Francis says, I was asked a question on a flight. 
after it made me mad, made me mad for how one news outlet transmitted it about the familial integration of people with homosexual orientation. And I said, homosexual people have a right to be in the family. People with homosexual orientation have a right to be in the family, and parents have the right to recognize that son as homosexual, that daughter as homosexual. Nobody should be thrown out of a family or be made miserable because of it. So some of his his remarks made it seem like he was promoting the fact that, like, oh, they have a right to a family, meaning, like, um, is the church teaching now that um, people who are gay or lesbian should be able to have kids, be able to be married in the church, things like that, taking it to some of these extremes that um, the church has never taught before. And in context, that is not what Pope Francis is saying here. Um, He's saying that they should not be kicked out of their family by their parents if their parents cannot accept this way that they're identifying. They should be loved and cared for. Uh, And so part of the the wondering of what Pope Francis means by civil civil union laws, uh, convivencia civil, can mean civil unions, and it has been used and was used by him on previous occasions to talk about civil union laws when it applies to same-sex marriage or couples. But it can also be used legally in in Argentinian law to talk about like kind of people who have legal rights by living together. More like common law would maybe be the equivalent in the United States. Common law marriages where you've lived together and you retain certain rights because you're caring for each other or providing for the needs of each other in a certain way or after a certain amount of time. Um, He goes on to say, another thing is, I said, when you see some signs in the children... um, And from there, send them to, I should have said a professional, but what came out was a psychiatrist. I meant to say a professional because sometimes there are signs in adolescence or pre-adolescence that they don't know if they are homosexually oriented or if it is that the thymus gland didn't atrophy in time. I don't even know what that means, but who knows? A thousand things? No. So a professional... The title of the daily paper, The Pope Sends Homosexuals to the Psychiatrist, it's not true. So he's talking there about how he was misquoted or how he chose the wrong word when he was talking about how to minister to young people who think they might be identifying as homosexual. He said, well, we should make sure that they're um, aware of that identification, that they're doing that in a way that isn't... um, that they've, you know, are able to see a professional who can help them through that because there's so many different issues that arise. He used the word psychiatrist and he's saying that was not the right word. It's not what I meant. And then he goes on to say in this interview, they asked me the same question another time and I repeated it. They are children of God. He's still talking about people who identify um, as gay or lesbian. They are children of God. They have a right to a family and such. Another thing is, and I explained I was wrong with that word, but I meant to say this. When you notice something strange, ah, it's strange. No, it's not strange. Something that is outside of the usual. That is, not to take a little world, a little word to annul the context. There, what I said is that they have a right to a family, and that doesn't mean to approve of homosexual acts. Not at all. Um, however, he does say we need to stand up for these civil union laws. Okay, so that is what Pope Francis really said. He's edited to a very shorter version of that, and the statements are um, uh, displayed captions out of order, which gave people a lot of questions. You know, why is this Pope saying this? And a lot of people who've been critical of Pope Francis have been critical of the fact that he says a lot of stuff like this and doesn't provide clarity, doesn't provide context for what he means, and seems to be in contradiction to church teaching. Now, regardless of where you stand on that issue, 
um, it's clear what the church teaches on that issue, that we need to have love, care um, for all people, regardless of their sexual orientation, that they all have a home and a sense of belonging in the church, but that God created us with a sexuality and with a sexual identity, and that is good and, um, and beautiful and to a certain natural order. And when we do things outside of that natural order, namely uh, engage in sexual acts that do not have in the end of themselves the unity uh, of the couple and the procreation of children, then difficulties arise, and that is outside of the way that the natural way the body was created uh, to be lived out. And so, however, no matter what, we should still be welcoming of people who identify in different ways, recognize everyone's primary identity is a child of God. They have dignity. They should not be demonized. They should not be thrown out. They have the right to be in their family. They should not be cast out from families who cannot accept them. And so it's unclear if Pope Francis is saying we need to have legal protection for those people who've been thrown out of families to be able to stay or people who need to live together, um, you know, who might also identifying this way to have legal protection, or if he's acknowledging, it seems based on the context at the time in Argentina, that instead of same-sex marriage, he was promoting this as an alternative and say, let's say they can have civil unions because he, Pope Francis in his papacy has constantly defined that marriage is between a man and a woman, that homosexual acts are not inside the natural order and all of those things. And so it's clear if you look at his whole, what he said on the issue as a whole, that he's not, you know, providing anything new here. But because he used that phrase civil unions and that he stood up for that is what he says, is what people are wondering, what does that mean? So they've looked at the original language. They can't really tell what that means and the context he used it in. Um, and a, a 2003 document has been heavily quoted um, that's from the church, from the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, specifically says that respect for homosexual persons cannot lead in any way to approval of homosexual behavior or the legal recognition of homosexual unions. And so Pope Francis seems to be in direct contradiction to that previous statement from the church. Um, so... All of that being said, there was some confusing quotes from Pope Francis on the issue of um, civil unions, and people went all up in arms about that. The thing that frustrates me about this is that, you know, there was an article that came out, I think in the National Catholic Reporter that day um, in the morning about this documentary that came out, and it praised all of these parts of the documentary about Pope Francis going and apologizing to people he was um, in it unintentionally insensitive, uh, insensitive to um, who were dealing with um, and, uh, accusations toward an abusive bishop or priest in Chile. And he went back and he apologized and clarified. Uh, it talks about his dealing with refugees, about his ministry to marginalized people, all these things, and it celebrated it. And then there's this one interview, you know, this one line in this documentary that took over, and all of a sudden the National Catholic Reporter reissued and updated their article, and it was entirely about this one phrase. And none of those people, as far as I know, had seen the documentary because it had only been premiered in Italy. It did not make its North American premiere until October 25th at the SCAD Savannah um, Film Festival. And you can still stream it online, I think, uh, today if, if you're watching this um, or listening to this today on Halloween. Um, that goes until today, and you can buy a $5 ticket and gain access to watch the documentary in full, and I'm sure it'll be available other places. 
Um, but yeah, it just bothered me that it was like so jumping like this one line and not waiting to see the context. I mean, we have to realize like Pope Francis has been misquoted and so it's like every, you know, popes all, all the time, religious people all the time. Uh, but people have been critical about his lack of clarity when it comes to doctrine and context. And so I, I want to speak to that for a second because Pope Francis is a Jesuit. And the Jesuits sometimes get a bad rap for saying things like this and for appearing that they are not in conformity to church doctrine. The reason why I think that appearance happens is because a lot of other religious traditions or religious groups like the Dominicans, the Benedictines, you know, um, other different orders, they have a charism that's oriented toward doing ministry to people. You know, like we teach, we preach. Dominicans are great preachers. Uh, Franciscans do ministry to the poor and with the poor and providing for their physical needs. Um, but a lot of it has to do with very doctrinal study, um, you know, very scholarly approaches to studying the faith um, and transmitting that to other people. The thing about Jesuits is that Jesuits do ministry among people. They are I mean, not that other priests are not, but like as, a, as an entire order, that's just part of their charism that they do ministry in such a way that they are amongst the gray area, pastoral, real life situations of people. And you can't just give a black and white church teaching to people because truth, yeah, teachings are truth, uh, black and white, maybe in a vacuum, but the way you present it. It still will be like, yes, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. But the way you present it, the way you articulate it, and the way you sit with that person, kind of like the culture of encounter that Pope Francis is promoting in Fratelli Tutti, all of that matters and changes the way you word things. And I think it's clear that Pope Francis embodies that spirituality as a Jesuit. Um, and... I think that is why people criticize him because, and the people who criticize him have a deep love for the church, a deep love for the doctrines of the church, the, the traditions of the church. And that's nothing, that's something to celebrate that they have this love and they have this concern. I want to, I want to say maybe that concern comes from the fact that we're so used to hearing faith talked about a certain way. And we have 2000 years of that, that maybe Pope Francis is adding a lens by which we can actually have real life conversations with people and then fall back on that doctrine. And Pope Francis does that. He clearly states in many other places his beliefs and stances on this issue. But in this one documentary, he's you know quoted and misquoted and misunderstood in such a way that created this calamity from certain groups of Catholics. And I think that's unfortunate that they allowed that to perpetuate, perpetuate in the comments on their things, because maybe, to be honest, they were more concerned about having the soundbite or being right or being the person who's holier than thou and criticizing this person for being a bad pope. Look, Pope Francis might be an unclear pope. He might minister in a very different way. But if you want to see bad popes, like go back and see the popes that were assassinating each other or that were in, you know, mob families or popes that fathered illegitimate children or who had orgies in the Vatican. Like those were real things that happened and they are probably rotting in hell unless they repented. Like those were evil people, but the church persisted. The church will always persist. And so something that we have to remember is we cannot lose hope as Catholics. Like we can never give up hope. 
we can't have this mentality that like, oh, the end is near. Everything's falling apart. I guess the church is going to fail. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. It's so awful. I can't believe that he said this. And, you know, again, another, you know, misunderstood thing from Pope Francis. When will he get it? And just kind of wallowing in Catholic pity. And it's just like, come on, like, don't you realize God is bigger than all of this? Like that we can have hope. The Holy Spirit has not stopped guiding the church. Even if we have a Pope that communicates in a different way, an unhelpful way, or even a wrong way. And then lastly, this does not mean that like church teaching would have changed. You know, Pope Francis was in an, in an interview sharing his opinion and his experience on a given issue. He was not writing a papal document. He was not speaking infallibly. He was not giving infallible church teaching. Those things rarely happen, the infallibility things. And it's, you know, a big thing when a, a, a Pope releases a document that uh, involves pastoral practice or authoritative teaching. This was nowhere near that level of teaching authority. This was him kind of talking off the cuff. So I think we need to look at things in their proper context and not get so freaked out by them. Um, so I want to end with a saint, and this is our last kind of mysterious thing because you probably heard also of this in the news that recently a young man who um, lived in the last you know 30 years was beatified. He is now Blessed Carlo Acutis. Um, and this is another mysterious, you know, happening in recent events in the church um, to celebrate this Halloween season. Um, and so Carlo, he was born May 3rd, 1991 in London. He is younger than my wife and I both. And he is almost a saint. How crazy is that? He was so he's baptized May 18th and then his family moved to Milan later that year. Um, his family was not practicing the faith. But Carlo inspired their return to church. He wanted to receive communion at the age of seven, which is kind of near normal age in the United States, but was not normal in this place and at this time. Um, but he was allowed to do so at a special ceremony. He loved being outdoors, um, playing with animals. He loved soccer. He loved playing PlayStation. We had a saint who played video games. This is crazy. Or a saint in the making. And he was very passionate about computers and computer science. He um, actually built a website, I'll talk about that in a moment, about Eucharistic miracles. Um, but he um, he would go to daily Mass, he would stay in adoration uh, before or after Mass, and he is quoted as saying, the Eucharist is my highway to heaven. Also, he said, we are luckier than the disciples who lived with Jesus 2,000 years ago. We only need to go to the church to encounter him. And so he used his skills with computers to build a site about Eucharistic miracles. It took him three years of traveling around, collecting information, and building the website. Um, other things about him, he would pray the rosary daily. He would say, Mary's the only woman in my life. Um, he came from a wealthy family, but he chose to live simply. He used the first money he saved to buy a sleeping bag for a homeless man. Um, and he would give food to the poor in the streets at night, sometimes his own dinner. He was a catechist at his parish for younger children. Um, he said to criticize the church is to criticize ourselves. And I think that is such an important thing to be reminded of right now. Like we can jump to conclusions so quickly because we're kind of eating up this cultural meal of division and we're, we're not recognizing we're falling into this secular trap and losing hope and losing our need to have a culture of encounter, our need to dialogue with one another. Um, and blessed Carlo teaches us that. So when Carlo, um, in October, 2006, when he was 15 years old, he was diagnosed with type three, 
uh, or type M3 fulminant leukemia. Um, and he offered his sufferings for the Pope and for the church. He ended up dying just a few days later on October 12, 2006, at the age of 15. Um, two days before that, he had requested anointing of the sick and the Eucharist. He wanted to be buried in Assisi, the birthplace and, uh, or home of St. Francis, and he was. And in October 12, 2012, six years later, uh, exactly, his case for canonization was opened and sent to the Vatican. And so people began asking for his prayers when they started hearing his story. And in February uh, 2020, the Pope approved a miracle, meaning it could not be explained by scientific or medical means. And there was a boy in Brazil with a congenital anomaly who was healed um, because him and his family prayed for the intercession of of Carlo. Uh, So when he was declared beatified, they exhumed his body um, and they found him to be mostly incorrupt. His body had not decayed in six years. He was not hermetically sealed. He was not preserved in any way. They had to do a little bit of facial reconstruction on his face, which is not atypical of incorrupt saints. Um, It's still miraculous that he's in the state that he literally looks like he's sleeping and he's in just like normal teenager clothes. Um, And so he is a a visible tomb where you can look in the side of it and people can come and um, pray asking for his intercession there at his tomb. Um, Really cool. Awesome. Awesome saint for you, for young people in your life, or if you are a young person to know, um, because just an amazing inspiration, inspiration to me, younger than me and already on the path to sainthood. That's crazy. Um, inspires me. So I know that's a longer episode, but there's been so much going on in the world and in the life of the church right now. And I just think it's, it's important to dive into those things. So I hope that kind of run through of Fratelli Tutti was helpful to you. I encourage you to read it, read it in little bits, read maybe five paragraphs a day and um, you know, you'll get through it before you know it, but it's a really, really good document. There's so much in there. And I, I quoted a lot and I had to delete like two thirds of the things I wanted to say about it. It was just really oozing um, Pope Francis and oozing just his sense of what's going on right now and just bringing the gospel right to those places, which I thought was really refreshing. Um, and then an awareness of what he said lately, I, I know I'm going to acknowledge Absolutely. You know, I'm not like a, a, a praiser of Pope Francis in the sense that like he can do no wrong and that, you know, yeah, I would love that he had more clarity because our church is used to hearing about things from popes in a certain way. I think we would also be benefited by recognizing the benefit of his Jesuit spirituality and the lens of what it looks like to have pastoral practice be a part of your whole charism. However, it is unhelpful to the rest of the world because the rest of the world picked up on those sound bites and thought that the Pope was approving of same-sex marriages, same-sex unions, um, same-sex cohabitation, all these different things. And that's not, uh, it doesn't seem to be what he was approving of. And it's not in line with what he says later in the interview that was cut out that I read to you. Um, and so, Interesting things happening. Also, you know, the beatification of Carlo Acutis. So continue to ask for his intercession. Maybe you will be, or someone you know, will be the miracle that makes him a saint. How cool would that be? Um, So I offer all that to you. A lot of crazy things going on. And as it is Halloween today that this day comes out, the spooky, the mysterious, the crazy, the scary, the things that incite fear in people, all of those things kind of do that in some sense. And so I thought they would all make for a good episode. So hopefully you enjoyed that. I pray that um, it blesses you, gives you a sense of what has been going on and maybe some clarity um, to the issues that have been brought up. 
And if you have questions or concerns or thoughts about any of those topics and you want further clarity, please reach out and I'd be happy to do a follow-up on that. But I offer that to you. I hope it blesses you. I hope you have a uh, wonderful and safe beginning of the holiday season. Uh, Dia de Muertos, Halloween, all saints and all souls, remembering those that we have lost and celebrating our hope in heaven. Make sure you're following us on social media. The highest compliment you can pay to us is to share this uh, episode with other people uh, on social media. At Mana Food for Thought on Instagram is our handle. And you can support us financially for as little as $1 a month if you go to our website, manafoodforthought.com, and click on the Patreon tab. Um, make sure you go there also to see our weekly Psalm Reflection and all of our other great content at manafoodforthought.com. Continue to pray for me as I uh, consider rebranding, and uh, we definitely will be going in another direction or um, starting a whole new initiative or podcast. And so pray for me as we, um, my family and I discern what that looks like. And um, yeah, I'm excited, very excited to show you kind of what we're cooking up. So um, pray for us, uh, pray for me, and know that I'm praying for you. And until next time, I will see you in the Eucharist. Bye.